This podcast is intended for a mature audience over 19 years of age and is provided on an educational and informational basis. Any material presented is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for professional medical advice or as an endorsement or medical claim by Patterson Media, Everything Podcasts, or any advertiser. I challenge the validity of medical marijuana. The medical marijuana stops the arthritis, it stops the pain in my shoulders, the pain in my back. I don't need to medicate with pharmaceutical drugs that make me feel nauseous or sick. It's not a resistance to the idea of medical cannabis being a medical product. You showed his medical marijuana card, but it didn't matter. But rather, not understanding how to make a box for it because it doesn't fit in the current box. The law was on trial as it pertained to autonomous decisions about health. This is the Canadian Podcast. I'm Don Schaefer. Before cannabis was readily available recreationally, a lot of the chatter was around medicinal cannabis. You could argue that to shift public opinion towards full legalization, you had to start with showing the benefits of cannabis before you convince everyone that actually getting high is no big deal. And that's certainly what the lawyer who first got cannabis prohibition declared unconstitutional in Canada was thinking. To have clients who would come to you with life-destroying criminal records because they were smoking pot in a park and now they couldn't travel to the States, now they might even go to jail. It made it obvious to me anyway that there wasn't anything better I could be doing with my legal skills than pursuing this. On the Canadian podcast today, We're telling the story of how Aaron Harnett fought cannabis prohibition and won. It's a really dramatic court case, and the arguments were based on a different case that led to abortion regulation being struck down. Stick around for that. Before we get to the history, though, medicinal cannabis doesn't get talked about so often today. Some users claim medicinal cannabis is very effective for many conditions like epilepsy, etc., Despite its increasing popularity, the evidence supporting the medical efficacy is limited. So we're talking to Dr. Stephanie Lunn, Director of Medical Affairs for the largest medical cannabis producer in Canada, Aurora Cannabis, about what they're researching right now. We are sitting in a serious opioid crisis in North America. The evidence out there that cannabis can help reduce opioid use is enough for me to just be so curious as to why we're not acting on it. That's all coming up on this episode of the Canadian Podcast. With the latest pot news, I'm Jay Coburn. U.S. President Joe Biden has signed into law a bill expanding cannabis research in America. The bipartisan bill signals a new era in federal cannabis policy. It's the first standalone cannabis bill approved by both chambers of Congress. The Senate and the House both passed it with unanimous consent. It will make it easier for scientists to conduct medical cannabis research and protect doctors who discuss the drug with patients. The move is the latest signal that the US is moving towards federal legalization. In October, President Biden pardoned everyone convicted of simple marijuana possession under federal law and called for a review of cannabis laws in America. Cannabis stocks rose by around 9% on the news. Later in the Canadian podcast, we'll be telling the story of how medical cannabis was legalized in Canada, leading to eventual total legalization. The first legal recreational cannabis dispensary has opened in New York. 
In an unusual move, the state passed a law which gave priority to people adversely affected by enforcement of marijuana laws for early cannabis business opportunities. The first sales took place at a dispensary operated by Housing Works, a non-profit that supports people living with HIV and AIDS. Recreational cannabis was legalized in New York State in 2021, but until now, there was no way to purchase it legally. Now, adults over 21 years of age can possess up to 3 ounces of cannabis on their person, store up to 5 pounds of cannabis at home, and cities and towns can have on-site consumption areas where people can use cannabis. The Cannabis Council of Canada, or the C3, has called on the federal government to provide immediate financial relief for the legal cannabis industry and to end the stigmatization of legal cannabis. The call was part of a response to an ongoing review of Canada's Cannabis Act. The C3 says it is urging the federal and provincial governments to deal with the financial viability of current market participants. It called for the government to address the unpredictably aggressive excise tax and to implement a moratorium on regulatory fees imposed by Health Canada. That's the POT News. I'm Jay Coburn. Back to you, Don. So we've just entered the hallway of Aurora's 55,200 square foot production facility. Dr. Stephanie Lund is Director of Medical Affairs for Aurora Cannabis. They're responsible for recreational brands like San Rafael and Daily Special, but they're also the largest producer of medical cannabis in Canada. I have kind of two big aspects of my job, one being managing our medical research activities, and then the other aspect is where I spend a lot of my time, which is reading the scientific literature and using the scientific evidence out there about the medical effects of cannabis. Dr. Lund spoke to our producer, Karen Habashi. Right now we have a study we're supporting in palliative care management. We have some interest in the harm reduction space. We're very interested in any observational real-world evidence studies. You know, our products are out there being used. We'd love to know more about that. So surveying our patients is a great place to start. And then we're also involved in some preclinical, so that's non-human work, to better understand how cannabinoids are working so we can understand better why they have the effects that they do. How is the government making your life easier or harder in regards to medical research? Because if they invested more time or make it easier for you, because I know paperwork can make anyone lose hope, they would find lots of things that they can help with, like you said, harm reduction, the opioid crisis and so on. So what do you think the government should do on their behalf? Before 2020-ish, we were allowed to submit regulatory documentation that was not product specific because CBD is CBD, regardless of the product. Then a few years later in 2020-ish, the change happened where we were expected to provide product specific data for our regulatory submissions for a clinical trial. That change is not insignificant. It takes five-ish years to get enough data to get into a first phase human trial. So to ask for product-specific data with no discussion really sets research back about five years. In the meantime, our products are out and about being used and we can't study them. So then last year in March, there was a change from Health Canada after significant discussions with government relations teams like ours at Aurora and our C3 Industry Association. We got some ease there where they said, some trials, so if they are more exploratory in nature, we will allow non-product specific data in that submission. 
but if it's more than exploratory, you need the product-specific data. That is a very subjective definition, and so it really is a bit of a trial and error still, what is considered exploratory or not exploratory. We've had success in this pathway with non-product-specific data, so we're really thankful for that, but every submission is kind of a guess. Will it get approved or not? And that really adds a lot of risk to someone like us. Putting a submission package together is not insignificant. So research in Canada has definitely taken a hit and I hope that we see some changes moving forward. And in the meantime, we do what we can. But it's not in the best interest of patients or consumers not to be able to easily study medical effects of products because they're using them. It's very complicated, the relationship with Health Canada. That's the status. <laughs> and, you know, I do want to say they have eased things, right? We had the March 2021 easement. We've had some changes this year, which will allow us to do non-therapeutic clinical research. So asking if someone, when they feel the effect, how long the effect, safety measures, those kind of studies are going to move under the research licenses for cannabis research under the Cannabis Act which will be the first in the world, I think, that clinical research involving cannabis, involving any drug in a human study, is not under the Food and Drug Act. It's a landmark place and time on the long road to bringing medicinal marijuana into the scientific mainstream. So I do like to give kudos where kudos are due, but I would like to see a bit more help from them. Is it because no one can actually trademark cannabis for medical use in comparison to other pharmaceutical medication? I think I would reframe that as it's harder to make a drug number product with cannabis. Typical pharmaceuticals are one active compound. Advil is ibuprofen as the active. It's very easy to make it. It's the same compound every time. It's the same amount every time. Putting a drug package together like that is very easy and that is what they're used to. Whether or not cannabis extracts can become a drug or not, we've seen that happen. GW Pharmaceutical has had success with extracts being approved with drug numbers, Epidiolex for epilepsy, Zativex for different conditions. So I don't think that has anything to do with it, but what it is really is Health Canada's mindset that if you're making a medical product, it should follow the medical product pathway. And that is what has been rule of the land forever. But we have a very unique product in that it has multiple active ingredients. It's based from a plant, so there's variability, and it can do so many things. <laughs> and it's out there. And so it's at every step of the drug pathway without being anywhere almost. And so it's not, I think, a resistance to the idea of medical cannabis being a medical product, but rather not understanding how to make a box for it because it doesn't fit in the current box. You noted earlier like epilepsy and so, but what are the confirmed medical uses for cannabis? So the largest body of scientific evidence that we have for medical cannabis efficacy is for chronic pain. That is the main reason patients come to seek out cannabis to help manage their chronic pain. And chronic pain is many different things. So that as a title is helpful to an extent, but there's certainly more work to be done to determine specific types of chronic pain, what ratio of cannabinoids is most effective, what format, what extract. We need to do a lot of work there. And then chronic pain is very rarely a condition by itself. 
Many patients with chronic pain will also experience anxiety, depression, sleep issues. Those are the next top three conditions that patients seek out cannabis for. And it's very difficult to tease out when they say cannabis is helping them. Is it just the pain or is it also improving sleep? And so that aspect of talking to patients is very interesting because sometimes they'll say, you know, it really helped my sleep. Now my pain is better too. And now my science brain is like, I wonder which one came first. So it's very interesting how helpful it can be for chronic pain and everything around chronic pain, including as we've touched a bit on the opioid crisis. How can we use cannabis in a way to, number one, protect individuals from addiction, and number two, potentially use it as a idea to reduce the scourge and negative consequences from the opiate epidemic? The amount of evidence there is really building. I have a hard time understanding why we haven't acted more on it. There is a significant amount of evidence that shows that medical cannabis, legalization of cannabis, leads to a reduction in the use of opioids, benzodiazepines. These are not drugs that are kind to people. You know, we are sitting in a serious opioid crisis in North America. The evidence out there that cannabis can help reduce opioid use is enough for me to just be so curious as to why we're not acting on it. Opioids are well covered by insurance companies. Cannabis is not always. And sometimes it comes down to a person having to decide if they're gonna pay their bills and therefore have to go with opioids or if they wanted to go with cannabis, they couldn't you know, afford other things. So there's a lot tied up in that, and I hope that we make some progress there. Dr. Lunn is not only a scientist and a medical researcher, but advocates for Cannabis Act reform and change wherever she can. And like a true scientist, she comes with facts. We hope to see a removal of excise tax from medical cannabis. We hope to see an increase in the amount of THC allowed in edibles. That's a huge limiting factor for patients. Right now, that is 10 milligrams per package. It's also meaning that it's keeping the illicit market alive with that limit. So get engaged. Cannabis is legal here. We should be thankful for that, of course, but there's still a lot to do. And we're always here to answer questions. A big part of moving medical cannabis, cannabis in general forward is education and getting the right information out there. And that's a big part of my job. So we're happy to field any questions and be out there educating. If you need some support on that, check us out. (laughs) So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. That was Dr. Stephanie Lunn, Director of Medical Affairs for Aurora Cannabis. Dr. Lunn helped us understand the lay of the land for medical cannabis today. But in the 90s, even medicinal use was illegal. Let's go back to the court case that changed that. And just a heads up, you'll hear the term marijuana occasionally throughout this piece. It's a term we prefer to avoid due to its history. But a lot of the old literature and legal documents did use the term, so it's hard to avoid completely. It's early in the morning, in the middle of December, in 1997. In Toronto, a young lawyer is in bed with his wife, drinking champagne, eating chocolate, and giving an interview on BBC Radio. 12 hours, Greenwich Mean Time, BBC World Service. I think at one point in the interview, I kind of cough up some bubbles. And, you know, I had this huge smile on my face as I'm running through the 
talking points of what I wanted to say, dropping chocolates on the sheets with the bubbles of champagne coming out my nose. Aaron Harnett is five years into his legal career, and he's just won a case that will change Canada. This trial will lead to the end of cannabis prohibition. It's a huge moment. For a young guy to have a big hit like this at the beginning of the career, I don't think I have to underline the point of what a great bit of good fortune it was for me. It launched my career. And there was something kind of cheeky about speaking with this BBC reporter with his Tony accent and his serious-minded questions, all the while sitting in bed, drinking champagne and having a big smile about it all. The man Aaron is representing is Terrence Parker, or Terry. He's in his 40s, and he's been living with life-threatening epilepsy since he was a child. Epilepsy is the condition in which you have an underlying tendency to have seizures. And a seizure is an electrical storm of the brain. The whole brain gets activated, then the whole body jerks. And each one of those contractions in the muscles, each one of the lightning bolts in the storm. These are tonic-clonic, grand mal seizures, the worst kind that you can have, the ones that can kill you, the ones that can go on for hours at a time. And he would have one or two a day. And when you think about it, the ambulance gets called and you have injuries as a result of the seizures or the behavior of well-meaning, ill-equipped strangers or whatever the case may be. Life-threatening is not an understatement. Terry's tried endless medications, even two surgeries, to control his seizures. So far, nothing legal has worked. But cannabis does work. When he combines smoking with his medications, his seizures disappear almost completely. Terry grows his own plants so that he doesn't have to deal with dealers. And he's not shy about handing out his spare weed to friends in need. Until he gets arrested. His home is searched, and according to the law at the time, he's charged with cultivating, trafficking, and possession of marijuana, which were the broad charges for anything related to cannabis. Now he needs a lawyer. Terry's not the easiest person to work with. He gets turned down by other lawyers. Then he meets Aaron Harnett. I'd set up myself as a sole practicing criminal defense lawyer in Toronto, didn't have many clients, but lots of ambition and lots of hustle. My name is Aaron Harnett. I'm a criminal defense lawyer. My clients are everyday people who suddenly find themselves facing difficult circumstances. About 1995 or six, I became very interested in criminal constitutional law. And I was very interested always in cannabis law. Aaron's young and passionate. He wants to change the world. And this is his opportunity. I was a recreational cannabis user and had been for a long time. To have clients who would come to you with life-destroying criminal records because they were smoking pot in a park. And now they couldn't travel to the States. Now they would lose jobs. Now they might even go to jail. And knowing that one was himself consuming marijuana, but for the my good luck, I could also be thrown in a jail cell. It made it obvious to me anyway that there wasn't anything better I could be doing with my legal skills in pursuing this. Aaron looks over Terry's case and sees a huge opportunity. He might be a difficult client, but everything lines up to make this the case 
to challenge cannabis prohibition in Canada. Because for Aaron, the end goal is always total legalization, and Terry shares that vision. Mr. Parker was very, very, how should I say it? He was strong-headed about how he wanted the case to go. There was going to be no 11th hour settlement on the courtroom steps. He would rather go down and lose and go to jail than to compromise his case, even if it meant that he was going to have his charges dropped, but it wouldn't help anybody else. That wasn't going to be good enough for him. It's not just a shared vision. The facts of Terry's case make him the perfect defendant to challenge the law's validity under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I realized that he had gone through all of the scientific testing that other cannabis patients had not done. He had been involved in a program at the Addiction and Research Foundation that tried synthetic THC on his condition and found it didn't work. That is an amazing fact that helped to ground our arguments because otherwise the judge could just say, you're premature, you're here complaining, you want to throw out a whole law because Terry likes smoking weed and it helps for his condition, but you haven't tried some of the other legally available THC analogs. Well, he'd already done that and we could put that issue to bed. So... Terry and Aaron get together and start building a case for his trial at the Ontario Court of Justice. There's no question that Terry is guilty of what he's accused of. He did grow cannabis, and he did possess cannabis, and he did hand it out to other people. But that's not the point, and it's not Aaron's argument. Aaron will argue that the law itself is wrong, that it violates Terry's Charter of Rights to Life and Liberty, that without cannabis, his life is in danger, and that it's his right to choose the most effective and least risky treatment for his epilepsy. And Aaron will base his argument on another famous case, this one from 1988. Uh, it was in the back of my mind that we might be raided one day, but since I had been operating already for two and a half years with a tremendous record, it was an open secret that I was working here and doing abortions. The Crown versus Morgenthaler the case that struck down abortion regulation in Canada. Aaron and Terry are eyeing up cannabis regulations and they're going right for the jugular. It's not Terry on trial, it's prohibition. The trial judge was Justice Pat Lesage. Aaron says he was the perfect judge for the case, compassionate, progressive, and fair. I remember the first meeting that we had with our trial judge. And all he knew is that I was bringing a charter application and he thought it was going to be like, I was going to complain that there was a statement that was taken that was done before a lawyer could give legal advice or something along that line. One of the routine charter applications. And after it became clear that he hadn't read the memo, <laughs> I said, no, 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 your honor. No, no, no. That's not this case. We are seeking to strike down the cannabis prohibition. And he looks at me and he looks at the federal prosecutor has been brought in special for this case. And he said, oh, and he puts down his pen and he realizes for the first time that he is the guy who now over the months to come is going to have to make this very big, very public decision. And I told the judge, this is a very public case. 
better get ready. <laughs> so <laughs> the look on his face was one of both awe and terror. So we have an ambitious young lawyer, a strong-willed defendant, and an open-minded judge. But Aaron still needs to build an argument. He starts with abortion and the Crown versus Morgenthaler. That was my template. Because in Morgenthaler, you had a law that had overbroad effects. It was the law against being a party to or procuring a miscarriage, basically an abortion. And it was designed for certain legitimate purposes to prevent the ills as they were then conceived of, excuse the terrible pun, of a world in which doctors performed pregnancy terminating acts that were not related to the eminent health concerns and urgent needs of the mother. Well, that purpose was ill-served by the broad nature of the prohibition. The law went way too far, and it had all of these terrible effects. Backroom abortions, or unwanted pregnancies that led to mental health problems for mom and health problems down the road, etc., etc. So the law was on trial. And the reason it was a template in Parker was it was a law about life, liberty, and the security of the person as it pertained to autonomous decisions about health. The argument was that the government was forcing Terry to choose between life with no seizures or a life with pain and misery. He could take his medicine, cannabis, and be arrested, or he could stick with his ineffective pharmaceutical medication, putting his life at risk from grand mal seizures. To argue that, they had to prove that cannabis was an effective medicine for Terry's epilepsy. This is where Terry's medical history comes in. How to prove cannabis works? A six-month diary of Terry's seizures and cannabis use, kept by Terry at the request of his doctor in the 1980s. That diary showed that when Terry smoked alongside his medication, his seizures stopped completely. Without cannabis, the seizures came back. That, plus testimony from doctors, shows that for Terrence Parker, cannabis can treat his epilepsy. Next, they have to prove that the legal alternatives aren't better. Marinol is a synthetic substance that is pure Delta 9 THC that can be prescribed by practitioners. The problem with it was that once it starts being absorbed, you can't stop it. Some people get no effect. Some people just knocks them out. They get anxious. They get upset. So Marinol is the brand name of a synthetic THC that was developed in the 70s. And it's actually not a great drug. It's all the worst parts of THC without all the good parts. The Crown argued that Terry could take Marinol, but Aaron and Terry have an answer for that too, because Terry had already taken part in a study by the Addiction Research Foundation. And of course it didn't work. Why didn't synthetic THC work? Well, actually, both my toxicologist and the Crown's toxicologist agreed on something, and that was that THC is just one of, then we thought it was 56, now I think the thinking is there's upwards of 100 cannabinoids, active ingredients in cannabis, and THC is just one of them. So it may be that it was a different cannabinoid, perhaps CBD. Not only that, even if Terry found a doctor that would prescribe cannabis, 
there's no legal way to access it. There's one moment in the trial where all of that is made crystal clear for everyone in the room. Terry has a seizure right there in the courtroom. He had not had access to cannabis because he was prohibited from using it while he was awaiting trial because of the terms of bail. We were in this tiny little courtroom at Old City Hall. It has a little fireplace. It's like you're in someone's living room. It's a hilarious little courtroom. Anyway, that's where our trial took place because there really wasn't very many people. There was me and Terry, the occasional reporter, and my mother, who was my secretary at the time and who was taking frantic notes because we couldn't afford transcripts. So she was doing shorthand all day. And Terry went down and had a really hard, bad seizure right in the middle of one of the witnesses, I think. And the judge got a chance to see front and center what, what this is all about. It, let me tell you, it leapt off the page. You get a chance to see what this is really all about, what suffering looks like, and how, how if he just had access to his cannabis. Outside the courtroom, the press has noticed. Public opinion has been shifting towards cannabis legalization in Canada, and journalists know this is a big moment. So when it comes time to hear the judge's decision, there's a crowd of reporters waiting at the Scarborough Courthouse. So they can't have their cameras in the building, but they set up the scrum outside, and there's tons of reporters all the way through the hallways to this courthouse. And it's me, my wife, and Terry, and my mom, who is still my secretary at this point. She was my secretary for a long time. And we go into the courtroom, and it's packed. And he reads the decision. And I'm telling you, my hands were projectile sweating. I'm not a sweater, but I was soaking wet halfway through it. Because you never really know where the judge is going with some of these. Because they're reviewing the facts and they're reviewing the arguments and they're kind of summarizing stuff before they get to the meat of it. About two-thirds the way through, the language that Justice Lesage is using is making me feel pretty good. I'm looking at Terry, he's looking at me, I'm looking at my mom, and mom's looking at me. And he gets closer and more obvious and it builds to a crescendo. He found him guilty on the trafficking, but that was a throwaway. It didn't matter, it was worth probation or a fine or whatever it was, it was something, nothing. And then striking down the legislation and reading in exceptions and finding, you know, that it was unconstitutional and all the reasons why. That's it. The law is declared unconstitutional. The trial judge has written in an exception, which allows Terry access to cannabis for medicinal use. And the courtroom just starts vibrating because you've got all these reporters who are scribbling and they're all figuring out, holy cow, this is... This is hit. This is actually real. This is actually happening. Finally, we've got a real case where we can move the agenda on marijuana advocacy. And we're in the hallway and all pandemonium is breaking loose. People are running up and down the halls because they're running out to their vans or getting the cameras ready. And my mom's hugging me in the hallway. And she's like so happy because she's been working on this with me. And I'm like, mom, mom, don't hug me. Come on, all these people are watching. I'm your mother, I don't care. I'm gonna hug you. I don't care, they can wait, they can wait. <laughs> and at this point, I've been a lawyer like four years or something. 
I'm just a baby. If you look at the pictures from the press reporting, I look at myself, I'm a child. And I was just lightheaded. And Terry, of course, is doing cartwheels. Like, no matter what my involvement is with all of this, this is Terry's fight. But this is not where the story ends. The fight isn't over for Terry and Aaron. The government appeals. And the case moves up the judicial system to the Ontario Court of Justice. The process takes a couple of years, and Marinol comes up again in the Court of Appeal. So there's a moment when we're at the Court of Appeal. There were three Court of Appeal judges. One of them looked over his glasses at me, and he says, what about this? What about Marinol? Isn't that something that the court should be thinking about with respect to Mr. Parker and whether or not the law is overly broad? And, and I just said, you know, the only person who's ever prescribed Marinol for Mr. Parker's medical condition is the Crown Attorney. It just came out, and it was one of those moments where the judge looked at me and he smiled, and that wound up in the decision, because that was the answer. Considering the strength of Terry's case, that seemed an odd move to us. So we had to ask Aaron why they would bother to appeal. My strong suspicion is that within the federal government itself, there was an appetite to begin to move Canada to a decriminalization position. And so if you just shrug and say, it's not our fault, it's our crazy court and our crazy constitution, that's a much more convenient way to move the agenda along. That's kind of how politics gets done. So my view was that they were happy to advance the litigation, knowing they would probably lose, knowing that they should probably lose. Three years later, the Crown didn't just lose the case. The judges went further than that. The Court of Appeals said, yeah, yeah, it's really a bad law and we're going to strike it down and you've got a year to fix it. And if you don't fix it, then it's going to be chaos because there will be no law prohibiting the possession of cannabis in Canada for anybody or in Ontario, but other courts would have, I believe, followed suit. The feds had their work cut out for them. The language in the appeal decision is really blunt. Let's read a bit for you. Regulation of marijuana has a very short history and lacks a significant foundation in our legal tradition. It is, in fact, an embarrassing history based upon misinformation and racism. As McCart J. observed, the marijuana prohibition was enacted in a climate of irrational fear based upon wild and outlandish claims that its users are driven completely insane immune from pain, and while in this state of maniacal rage, kill or indulge in other forms of violence using the most savage methods of cruelty. If you want to hear that short and embarrassing history, you can hear it in the first episode of this show. It's a really striking decision to read. The judge just tears apart a lot of political myths about cannabis, that it's linked to criminality, that it's a gateway drug, all the tired arguments against prohibition. So in 2000, the court doesn't just add an exception to the existing law. They declare the whole law of cannabis prohibition unconstitutional and give the government a year to come up with a new one, which they do. But Canada has already been set on the path towards legalization. It takes another 18 years for the liberals to legalize it recreationally. And now, here we are, freely making podcasts about weed.
on the next Canadian podcast. The number of people arrested in Japan for cannabis-related incidents hit a record high in 2019. The long history of cannabis in Japan. The record number of incidents rose for a third straight year. Possession there still gets you five years in prison, despite cannabis hemp having important cultural significance. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Canadian Podcast. I hope you'll join us for the next one. Hit the subscribe or follow button to make sure you do. The Canadian Podcast is an Everything Podcast production in partnership with Patterson Media and sponsored by westernbuzz.ca, launching January 30th. Thanks to our creative director, Cliff Dumas, showrunner Karen Habashi, senior writer Jay Coburn, and audio producer John Massacar. I'm Don Schaefer. Another Everything Podcast production. Visit everythingpodcast.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast.